You are listening to the Conversations in Clean Energy podcast, brought to you by nonprofit Sustainable Westchester, a consortium of Westchester County, New York member municipalities, developing and implementing energy solutions that are socially, fiscally, and environmentally sound. Host Rodina Velova, the Regulatory Vice President at the Interstate Renewable Energy Council, and guests will explore a range of topics in the clean energy sector from policy and legislation to current marketplace solutions and the innovation driving the next generation of technologies, accelerating the transition to clean energy. Remember, the views or opinions expressed in this recording reflect those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position of Sustainable Westchester, the Interstate Renewable Energy Council, or our sponsors. Today's show's sponsors include... Sonin, a global leader in safe and innovative solar home battery technology, brings an innovative program to New York homeowners. With Sonin, you can protect your home from power outages, lower your energy costs, and help reduce CO2 emissions for your community. Learn more today. Logical Buildings is an award-winning smart building software developer and services provider with platforms that help property owners reduce operating expenses, generate revenue, lower carbon emissions, and achieve healthy building objectives. The show starts now. The first question is, I think, focused on storage because storage has the opportunity to provide a lot of grid services in, in innovative ways. Um, what policies do you think are necessary to support the deployment of more storage in New York, and especially for incentivizing the replacement of peaker generators with storage? Well, Dina, well, as you know, uh, the state legislature two years ago passed the CLCPA, uh, the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, um, the most aggressive uh, climate um, protection legislation in the history of the United States. And obviously everything that we're doing now is kind of directed that way, right? So as the chair of the Energy and Telecommunications Committee, I work very closely with, um, you know, the, the assembly, the governor, um, but also the committee on um, environmental conservation to make sure that everything that we're doing uh, legislatively kind of is, is, go- is kind of all roaming in the same direction, right? Um, when we talk about um, the CLCPA, obviously things like eliminating peakers, is a, a significant part of, of what needs to happen as we go forward over the next 30 years trying to meet these goals. And then obviously storage is part of that, right? And so for me, I think about storage as kind of the holy trinity of sustainable energy, right? <laughs> Sunlight, you know, solar during the day, wind at night, and then storage in between. And so as we look at Um, incentivizing the use of storage. We're also looking at incentivizing the development of storage and storage-related activities here in the state of New York. And so some of of that is going to be about what can we be doing through NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority? Um, What can the PSC be doing um, to provide um, economic incentives for storage development companies to be domiciled here in the state of New York? We also just, in the state Senate, passed a bill that actually essentially eliminates peakers, you know, over the next 20 years um, and really kind of um, creates a both a stick and a carrot for generators to stop using fossil fuels, particularly, again, these dirty peaker plants and to, to start um, upgrading those plants into sustainable and clean energy. Um, can, can you describe what actions are happening at the state level specifically to address the environmental justice issues created by reliance on peaker plants? Yeah, well, we're working on a number of different issues, and I've and I've really been a leader on this issue even way before we even got to CLCPA. 
one of the things that we passed in the CLCPA was a bill that actually wrote, you know, 10 years ago that creates a environmental justice review panel. And it really was critical within the context of um, CLCPA because it, it really just essentially puts a environmental justice lens on every single action that the CLCPA takes, right? And so anything that you're doing, you have to stop and ask yourself, how does this affect environmental justice, right? And so I think that that legislation that we pass and has become law already um, is going to be a big part of, of how the state moves forward. Um, but I think also as we move um, forward with, with, other, with other actions, that kind of has always kind of have, has to be part of the conversation. And when I talk about environmental justice, I'm thinking about it both within the context of how do we take away negative um, attributes out of particularly black, Latino and poor communities, um, but then also how do you create opportunity? Because as I've indicated, um, you know, we're in the process of not just cleaning up our environment, but also creating a clean energy economy. And we wanna make sure that those who have been left out of the broader economy get their fair share in the context of this clean energy economy, right? And huge issue for me, huge issue for my constituents, you know, huge, and not just Brooklyn, but from Brooklyn to Buffalo, you know, we, we, you know everybody is looking for these, these opportunities, you know, to, to do this work. And so some of it has to do with, you know, training and development, because again, creating full-time jobs at living wage with benefits is going to be critical as you start building these things out, you know, wind, solar storage, you need, you know, actually one of the biggest costs in actually developing these different resources is literally labor. And part of it is because we literally don't have enough people who are trained in, in these technologies. And we really need to look at people who have done a lot of the work in the traditional energy field and retrain them, right? And so people who might've been working in peaker plants, people who might've been working on oil or coal, right? Or you know, working in the fracking industry, we now need to retrain them to do storage, right? To do solar, to do you know, hydro, right? To do wind. And so, you know, I think that that's going to be an industry and the retraining is going to be a big part of, of what, you know, we're going to need to do. And that's part of the conversation that I think that we're having in the committee. But one of the biggest things that that's happening is uh, a bill I just put in the CCIA, the Climate Community um, uh, Act. And that bill really is designed to essentially deal with the issue of um, kind of carbon pricing uh, at, at its base, and then using those funds, um, particularly to, to, to address the issues that are happening environmentally um, in Black and Latino and, and lower income communities. And so those are kind of the main areas um, for right now, but we continue to uh, literally look at every single action that we take on the energy front and making sure that it has an EJ component. And we're going to have to teach, you know, the populist respond to demand response. Right. And a lot of people don't talk about that, but that's, you know, probably almost 10 percent of everything we're going to need to do is going to be, you know, people just behaving differently than they behaved as it relates to energy and their use of energy. Again, as a kid who grew up in the 70s, you know, I remember, you know, being on gas lines with my parents and I remember us learning about conservation in school and turning off lights and, you know, shutting off the water when you brush your teeth. We're going to really have to go back to those, those kind of modalities to really retrain um, the people, the residents of the, of the state of New York. On, on the best time to wash clothes and to um, do certain things in the house and, and you know, shutting off, you know, electric items, and which is harder now because we have far more things, you know, between phones, watches, you know, ring lights, laptops, you know, big screen TVs, right? And so um, that vampire power 
that's going on all the time is also another issue. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of work to, that needs to be done. And so um, my committee is, uh, you know, I told my, my staff is full employment for them. They're not convinced about that, but it, it's certainly um, keeping everybody busy. Um, and we're trying to kind of methodically go through the things that we think are both most important, combined with some of the things that are easiest to do in order to kind of get the ball rolling. That's great. Thank you. I think you just covered so much ground. And, and I really appreciate both the historical perspective and looking forward, because I think um, that's it, it is really helpful to remind ourselves how far we've come, but also how much is still left to do. Now that we've heard from New York State Senator Kevin Parker, after a word from our sponsors, let's chat with Michael Gilbert and Jim Spano. Sonin, a global leader in safe, long-lasting home battery technology, brings an innovative clean energy program to New York homeowners in Westchester County and Long Island. Now, when you add solar and Sonin battery to your home, you gain access to clean, reliable energy and membership in the Sonin Community New York program. Community benefits include protection from power outages, access to financial incentives, lower monthly energy bills, and reduced carbon emissions for your community. Learn more about the Sonin community today and join us to build a clean, reliable energy future for New York. Logical Buildings is an award-winning smart building software developer and services provider. With products and services used in multifamily, commercial, manufacturing, and industrial properties, it is recognized for reducing operating expenses, generating revenue from existing mechanical equipment, lowering carbon emissions, and enhancing building health. Software platforms are currently used by owners and operators of more than 200 million square feet of building space nationwide. Welcome back to the conversation. In the second part of the show, we'll be joined by Michael Gilbert and Jim Spano. Senator Parker shared quite a lot, I think, of thoughts and information. So I'd love to hear your thoughts and response and just generally on a couple of things that he touched on. So um, first, as, as Senator Parker expressed so eloquently, eliminating the need for peaker plans appears to point to energy storage as an essential solution. And incentives so far within the clean energy space have focused very strongly on renewables rather necessarily than on storage specifically. Um, I have two questions in that regard. One is, um, what is your reaction generally to Senator Parker's remarks regarding um, the, the types of incentives and initiatives that New York is taking in relation to storage? And second, what other or additional uh, federal or state actions do you think are necessary to entice developers to bring more energy storage solutions to the table, particularly to replace peaker plants? Yeah, I, I think the senator is spot on um, in two areas. With regard to peaker plants, understanding that proliferation of renewables onto the grid does nothing to avoid the need for peaker plants. You know, having an intermittent power is, if anything, it actually increases the need for peaker plants unless there's an alternative. And storage is the obvious, from a cost perspective, currently is obviously the, you know, the alternative. First, people need to understand what the role of the peaker plant is. The peaker plant is, is supports base generation when there's a spike or a significant increase in demand before the traditional generation plants can throttle up and, and meet that demand. A traditional coal plant, for example, you can't turn a switch and just increase the production. It, it, it takes time for the engines to run and to produce that power. 
in the interim, there's instability on the grid. And that's when the peaker plants come into play. The peaker plant will provide uh, somewhat close to instantaneous power in that a peaker plant is gas fired and can turn on quickly and throttle up very quickly. Understanding that in doing that, it significantly increases the amount of carbon that it emits into the atmosphere. And that's why peaker plants uh, are the first line of attack uh, in, in the uh, war on, on climate change. Understanding that, we have to look at then how do we replace those peaker plants? How do we get that, that instantaneous or near instantaneous power to support the, uh, the uh, not only the when the demand increases, but with renewables, when the wind stops blowing or the sun stops shining, a cloud comes over and we have sudden decreases in generation as opposed to increases in demands. A battery storage system is will provide immediate power to the grid can draw on battery systems immediately. And therefore, they're an excellent source of, of power to offset that increase in, in or spike in demand. But also, those battery systems can absorb power or, or fill their reservoirs with excess power when sudden decreases in, in demand occur, and you have overgeneration, which also destabilizes the grid. So pairing generation with storage enables us to avoid the use of peaker plants, but there's a piece of that equation that we have to bear in mind, and that's cost. Obviously, the reason that peaker plants are, are the you know, prime source of, of quick generation is because they're economically affordable. You know, gas prices are low, but these gas plants, understand these peaker plants, they'll sit idle for 80% of the time. So that capital cost of building these things, when it, like anything else, if you, if you build a manufacturing plant and it's closed 80% of the time, and I guess some of us have learned that during COVID, um, it's, not very, it's not very profitable. On the other hand, storage has historically been uh, very expensive, and the technologies have really not, uh, in the past, have really not been compatible with the needs of the grid. As technologies increase and, and software and, and hardware is designed to support battery storage, and as battery storage pricing has decreased significantly, it now, it now makes sense to start considering pairing battery storage with generation. And quite frankly, that will drive the price of battery storage further down because as you have an increase, like anything else with scale, you're going to drive your prices down. So I'll, I can't agree more with the Senator's position. So I would just echo what Jim said in terms of the, the idea of peaker plants and storage and the necessity that, that renewables make storage more important than a traditional grid. What I would think about, you know, when I when I think about this problem, is you get you kind of kind of a few issues here. One is the cleanliness of the grid, right? Greenhouse are they dirty? Of a bigger plant, and the other one is really the asset utilization of the grid. Right? So what necessitates storage? If you had a if you had perfect asset utilization, right? if we used 100% of the grid's capacity, both in terms of transmission and distribution and generation, you wouldn't need any storage. It would be perfectly matched. And 
I think it's important. A lot of times these ideas get mixed up and I, I think it's important to bifurcate them because they're really two separate issues. So as a thought experiment, suppose we could have a peaker plant that ran on, on hydrogen and it wasn't dirty, right? So there was no greenhouse gas and no particulates. You would still have the same asset utilization issue, right? And intermittency that, 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 that Jim referred to. So it's important that we look at these things in conjunction. So storage is not necessarily a solution to everything. It's, it's part of a, an integrated solution. When you look at the energy mix in New York State, it's about a third natural gas, about a third nuke, and about a third hydro and renewable. So it's a relatively clean grid compared to other states. But as we bring more renewables on there, presumably to displace the natural gas fired piece, it's, it's important that that's done in a way which is both technically feasible, right? What do we want as, as rate payers? We want reliability and resiliency and price and obviously a clean grid as well. Storage is a part of asset utilization and renewables are a part of cleaning up the grid. I think you've both raised some critical issues related to distribution system planning and how we approach these issues. So I think before we go back to Senator Parker's remarks, I have two, um, I guess, slightly more technical questions on the interconnection and distribution system planning side. So um, can you speak a little bit to any experience you've had with developing distributed energy storage projects? So not utility scale, but distributed, particularly on the interconnection side. Have you encountered any challenges with interconnection cost timelines? Jim, I see you smiling. Um, so have, 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 have you had any, any challenges with interconnection costs or timelines, given that storage has these very different and very valuable capabilities and um, operating requirements compared to other kinds of DER, which enable it to serve the grid functions that you've both described? Yeah, I actually, I, I think one of the disconnects is the recognition by regulators, policymakers, industry experts that storage is a necessary component of a renewable grid. The disconnect is that from a regulatory perspective and a policy perspective, you have a series of utilities and ISOs and RTOs across the country that have been operating the same way for as long as most of us have been alive. Literally every employee of these companies has known nothing but the status quo. So it, it, the first, there's several areas where, where uh, we encounter the type of obstacles to implementation that, that you're suggesting. One is interconnection. And two is compatibility. In my own experience on the compatibility side, I've had a utility uh, require three reclosers for me to put a storage system on a, or combine it with this, a solar asset. You know, and of course, storage is expensive enough and we're trying to incentivize it and, and, and make it affordable. And then you have utilities that are going to come out and put on these precautionary, these excessive precautionary requirements, you know, which really just discourage it. Um, and, and understandably, I mean, it, obviously, transformation of the grid is scary when you've had nothing but the same routine for 100 years. 
Um, the second, I think on the interconnection side, um, from a distributed resource perspective, what we find is when you want to go in and, and, and I'll use an example uh, of a project that I've done. I'm taking an entire community, a brand new development. I'm going to take it and position it so that at any moment it could be pulled off grid and islanded so that when there is a, a peak demand on, on, the, uh, on that circuit, I can receive a signal and pull my demand off the circuit and operate on, on my storage units. Well, that sounds fantastic and it works great and it makes all the sense in the world until you go to interconnect it. Now you find that the utility wants to treat a residential, typical solar interconnection, which costs a couple hundred bucks, and they want to treat it as if it's a utility interconnection for thousands of dollars, and in some instances, tens of thousands of dollars. Obviously, there has to be regulatory direction to instruct the utilities on the need to provide traditional net metered interconnection rights, even if storage is connected to that solar system. Secondly, you have the more common instance where you have a single solar generation system backfeeding into a number, into a multifamily property, trying to put a solar and storage system together for a, called a 500 unit apartment complex the interconnection, the utilities will often treat that as a primary meter interconnection. And there you have, you can even be required to put a substation in uh, simply to, to be able to meet the load demands of a 500 unit apartment complex, which traditionally, if we didn't have the storage in there, that the fact that we're putting storage in there should make it a benefit to the grid, and yet it's discouraged it, not just the grid, it's actually a benefit to the utilities as well because we're decongesting their distribution lines. But instead, it's treated as if it's a, it's a threat to the stability of the grid and all you know, interconnection uh, costs go off the charts or become where you just simply, they don't allow interconnection. Um, and then the third is from a regulatory perspective. I have another project where we're building a, the, the largest microgrid in, in the state of New Jersey. Um, and we had a 400 unit uh, residential component to this project. It's a, it's a, you know, a multi-commercial project. There is a, a residential component. Because of the, the state requirements that power cannot be disconnected from residential uh, uh, users, utilities have taken the position that you cannot have a primary connection and I can't feed, I can't provide the power to this apartment complex from my microgrid. It has to be provided directly by the utility. And in that instance, you know, it, it, it required a significant increase in cost because I have to run lines from a centralized solar system to each individual unit as opposed to going through the primary, which obviously is less, it, it, it would have provided a much lower cost to the ratepayer. It would have provided better services to the grid, but because of ingrained policy, in that case, regulatory requirements, that has to be addressed. It, simply the, the same requirement on the utility could have been put onto the microgrid uh, and should have been in any event. So those are three areas that I think that obstacles 
that need to be addressed. I'll uh, share my experience. I kind of have a unique perspective now. Up until um, April of 2018, I worked for Con Edison. Uh, so I was involved with this from the utility side. And then uh, we call the utility side of the meter and uh, promoting DERS and energy efficiency towards Con Ed's uh, mostly CNI customers, commercial and industrial customers and large energy users. And then I went to my current job at Fair State. So we're a multifamily uh, owner, operator, developer of, of um, apartment buildings in general, and with a heavy emphasis on affordable housing. And I also now work in a number of states. Con Ed is obviously only New York City and Westchester. And now I've really been on the developer side for solar projects in New York, Rhode Island, New Jersey, um, Maryland, uh, and California, and Ohio. And we've looked at other places where we have uh, very good solar assets and roof assets in places like Virginia and Florida. And as Jim alluded to, there's, there's a, a physical interconnect issue with the grid itself, and then there's a regulatory piece. So the, the first, there's three questions basically. Can you build it? Can you connect it? And how can you monetize it? And if any of those three components don't exist, you're, you're really left um, in a way that, that you're not gonna do the project. So for instance, as I mentioned, Virginia, Virginia and Florida are great states for solar. It happens we've got real estate there, which is quite conducive to it. But the regulatory regime makes it very difficult to monetize um, anything beyond a residential solar project. Right? If you had a single family home, perhaps you could do it. Uh, where places like Rhode Island, and I would say New York, uh, again, from my experience within Con Ed and now developing with Con Ed, it's, it's changing. As Jim said, mostly things are the way, you know, you start in the way things were for 100 years, but they're changing very, very rapidly. And I'd say from somewhat of a national perspective, faster than any other place in the, in the country. And I like to say, I'm not saying that just because I'm a former Con Ed employee, but really seeing what's happening. And the other thing, you know, from a utility perspective, the, the, the primary concern of a utility is safety and reliability. And after that is everything else, and, and, right, and rightfully so. So I think they're working on it, but the technology is changing really faster than the, util, than the regulatory regime can change. And, and um, Jenny, you probably know this from your work at PACE. So everything is playing playing catch up, even though you're, you're physically able to do a lot of things that can be done. Also, if you know about, again, with New York, the AMI, the smart meter rollout, that is a big enabler, right? That enables to some degree DERS, right? And, and VDERS, so which is another form of a virtual power plant, right? Decoupling the offtake from the individual behind the meter project. So that's opened up a lot of monetization capabilities which didn't exist before. So I, I think things are moving in the right direction. But as Jim, Jim's obviously been in the weeds, and it is, it is when you're doing this, it is the nuts and bolts of what are called Caesar studies or system interconnect studies. There's a lot of unknowns when you start. Like you said, you don't know if you'll be able to build it. You don't know if you're going to do a, a half million dollar project and get tagged with a million dollars worth of utility upgrades on their side. Uh, and the utilities still need to struggle to say, how are they going to essentially socialize the costs of things across the, the rate base to make a more resilient and cleaner grid? Uh, and I think um, Senator Parker was alluding to some of those those issues as well. Uh, but I, you know, I think everyone is really trying to figure it out 
in the process. New York, I'd say, is a good state. I, I think I think some states right now, you know, in, in my opinion, deliberately um, create obstacles to doing this. Um, but I, you know, there's 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 obviously a big enough push in New York coming right from the top that everyone is trying. You know, the utilities and the ISOs are trying to come in line and, and let these policies be achieved. Well, I'm, I'm really glad to hear your perspective on that, um, particularly having worked in other states as well. It's very encouraging to hear that New York is on the right track. Yeah, the thing I would just add to that, though, we're speaking about electricity, but I think you're starting to see some similar things happening now around gas and decarbonization. Again, the, the two issues that I mentioned earlier, got the asset utilization, Right of the of the gas infrastructure transmission and distribution infrastructure, uh, and you actually then you have got the climate piece of it, and those are sometimes aligned. They're sometimes in conflict, but all these policies are now really trying to make a cleaner grid, which has better asset utilization, which should theoretically result in lower rates or less less costly rates, and better reliability and resiliency. Here, here. Um, so, Michael, I think I'd like to stick with you for this next question to get us started on your thoughts, um, carrying forward your comments regarding the role of utilities and their perspective with safety and reliability and the role of the private development community. How do you view the potential opportunities for partnership between the development community and utilities in supporting environmental justice and workforce development, the, the types of environmental justice and workforce development initiatives that are necessary for us to transition away from fossil-fired peaker plants? It's a complicated question. Um, a long time ago, I actually worked for the EPA. That was my uh, first job. So, you know, when you think about environmental justice, even, even for myself, right? So we say, what, 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 harms people most are basically respiratory ailments. So when I think out about even about fracking, right? Fracking happens in other states. One of the results of that is New York was having, had, had an abundancy of natural gas. So we're able to convert a lot of number six and number four, and number two oil burners. Uh, you know, there hasn't been coal here for a while. So we reduced particulate pollution and we made the air much, much cleaner. Right? So that's it might be one of the most beneficial things that's been done to everyone, right? Everyone breathes uh, the air. So it's, I don't want to, I try not to like prejudge what's the best outcome depending on what we're trying to achieve. So I think uh, there's, there's a couple of things. So now we, we spoke about reliability, right? Um, acid utilization and how, how greenhouse gas, greenhouse gas emissions from the eastern grid I think you know you're raising another issue, which is efficacy and equity in terms of, of the the objectives of, of greening the grid. So again, when I was at Con Ed, we had different program goals. Program goals were in terms of efficiency, so KWH, and demand right asset utilization, which are KW. Now it was much easier to acquire those savings from large customers, right? Big industrials, hospitals campuses, chains of store. And why is that? Well, because there was someone like me or you or Jim's whose day job was there to manage energy. We were educated. We had capital budgets. We looked at things on ROIs, we, right? ROI of the investment. Now, if you imagine trying to do that to homeowners, right? So I'm a, I live in, I'm a homeowner. 
how many doors does someone have to knock on? How many light bulbs does someone have to give out? Uh, how many how many air source heat pumps incentives have to ha have to happen to go look to get the same result? So now it's in terms of equity, the residential market is really where you want to go. You want to make these opportunities available to every citizen. But in terms of efficacy, it costs a lot more to get it done that way than in the big industrial users. Um, so I think that's one of the things that the that the, the policymakers need to struggle with, but also to really understand that those are the trade-offs. Um, the, the jobs and economic development, I think, is a very, very interesting area because I, I agree that there are a lot of jobs being created. I know even in our business, so we're doing some solar development, but even the level, the level of understanding, if you look at a building, the biggest, most of the greenhouse gas emissions coming in New York, if it's a typical gas-fired one or two pipe steam-heated building with uh, either making hot water, if they're lucky, off of a dedicated condensing boiler, and if not, they're making hot water off the steam coils. So the vast majority of that building's emissions are coming from the heating system. To run those right takes more training. So I think a lot of this workforce development could be taking some of the existing workforce and really upping their game. The thing that comes along with that, you know, we're putting in buildings now are better sensors, better ways of monitoring what's actually going on, even on a, on a fairly low tech device like a steam boiler. What it does is it reduces emissions, gives more reliability, and most importantly, you know, we're able to get you're able to better give residents the, the climate that they want. And anytime, you know, as an energy person, you walk around in December and it's 20 or 20 or 15 degrees and you see windows open, you know someone's getting too much heat. Because as a as a as an owner and operator, it's better to give too much heat than to get people cold and complaints. So these enabling technologies are coming along that, that let people run things better and more efficiently, but it does take more training. And it's, there's a lot of upgrade work going on as well. And those are also great opportunities for green job creation. Jim, how about you? Do you have any other thoughts to add? One of the things that I, I find interesting, I've been a, a supporter of the social injustice that we've seen in our industry for many, many years. Um, our industry was born and raised on the net metering concepts um, and the third party ownership models that were really responsible for the proliferation of solar throughout the US, particularly in the big solar markets uh, like California, New York, New Jersey. With net metering, for those that don't really understand the, the impact to the, to the low and middle income uh, communities, with net metering, you have to either be able to afford to buy a solar system, which obviously is out of the reach for most low and middle income families, or you have to qualify from a credit perspective to enter into a long-term power purchase agreement where the owner, a third-party owner of the system is going to rely on you making payments to him for 25 or 30 years. Um, and obviously that disqualifies the low and middle income communities. Um, so as a result, what happened is those in the higher economic scale that could afford solar or could qualify for financing and, and entering into these agreements, um, they all got the benefit of lower costs for their power. But what happens is they no longer contribute to the cost for the infrastructure, for the transmission and distribution charges. They're not paying the societal benefit charges. They're not paying all the other charges that every other utility customer has to pay. 
So what happens is the low and middle income communities end up not only not being able to participate in the savings, but they're literally subsidizing the people who could afford it because let's say 50% of, of assuming 50% of our rate payers could afford solar. That means the other 50% have to pay 100% of the transmission and distribution costs, even though the 50% that are using solar have access to the same exact services, the same lines, wires, so forth. So I think that we've, we've built our industry with a, with a um, unfortunate and unintended consequence, which was to the deficit of the low middle income communities. And I think policies now are recognizing that. Um, I think business models are being developed that, uh, and, and being encouraged to being developed that will further the ability of low and middle income households to take advantage of the benefits of the transition of our grid. Jim, can I make a, a quick comment on just to add what you said? So this is an example. So net metering was effective in getting solar built. Right? And that was the objective of the policy. And, and Jim raised the, the very astute points of, was it fair? Probably not, but it was effective. And I think we need to be, you know, when we say, hey, we want to get storage built. Storage is important, but the policy is very important in terms of how that's rolled out because the market, people like Jim or myself, are going to respond to what economic signals are out there and try to optimize around that. And I, I do think, you know, if you take the next iteration of, of net metering, which is community solar, that community solar is now making some of these benefits available to people who, who don't have the financial credit or, or ability to go build something on, 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 their, on their house and, and be able to monetize that. Where I was going as well is with the, with the business models that are available today and the comfort that the investment community currently has in the technology. See, as Mike was saying, the, the benefit of the net metering was that it enabled the scale of solar to, to occur quickly, which drove the price down, which now makes it available for all communities. So, you know, to that extent, it was certainly beneficial. When we're talking about storage, we have to, we have to look at that same, we have to look at what we did with the solar and say, how can we do it better on the storage side? And I think that the fact that technologies have been exponentially improved over the last even two to three years, energy management systems are far more complex than they were and far more reliable. So I think now we're finding that with lower cost of capital and, and models where the storage systems are monetized by providing services to the grid and then provided to the low and middle income communities at no cost, that's a model that enables those low and middle income communities to benefit who, who really need the savings and the reliability the most. They're the ones that when the grid goes out, they can't afford to go to a hotel. They don't necessarily have family that they can go stay with. They need the reliability and resiliency more than, than our, our middle income and, and upper income citizens. So I think that our battery incentive storages, since we have business models now um, that, that don't require 
credit underwriting from the, the offtake or, or the offtake to purchase it, but there's only a limited amount understanding that you can only monetize so much storage on the grid before the grid has more storage and it drives the pricing down and makes, makes it uneconomical. So I think if we come on, we come out with policy that incentivizes companies to install these in low and middle income communities, I think what we're going to find is we'll have the same ability to scale quickly and drive the price of, of storage down, but we'll be able to do it by taking the capacity needs of the grid for storage and allocating them a greater percentage of them to the low and middle income communities through incentive programs. I think that way we'll be able to avoid the unintended consequence of our desire to have a clean economy and to scale it up quickly. I think you've both raised some critical issues around the various services that storage can provide and the various challenges and opportunities um, with distributed uh, scale storage. Can you share a little about your thoughts on um, the different roles that distributed versus large scale storage can play specifically on um, phasing out peaker plants? So getting, I guess it, this question could combine everything from economics to um, policy on where storage assets are targeted. So I'll, I'll leave it to you to choose um, which framing or combination of responses to select. So the, the question is, what are your thoughts about the potential roles for both distributed and large scale storage in facilitating the transition away from peaker plants? I think you can kind of Leveraging back my time at Con Ed, there is really this utility scale storage and frankly utility scale solar, which I, I believe Jim you're, is more involved on the utility scale development. Is that right? I'm much on both sides now. Both sides, okay, right. And then there's and then there's customer side development of, of DGs, um, solar and, and storage. So there's a role for both. If you think about a peaker plan, right? A peaker plan is happening on the utility side of the meter, right? So that's the easiest fit to is to substitute a large storage device, a large battery near a substation where, where there, there might be a peaker plant or some type of asset like that. The more complex route is to actually do small scale DG, right? Virtual power plants and to be able to have that on the customer side of the meter throughout where it's needed and in lots and lots of different networks. And there's a couple of parts of that. There's storage, but there's also Demand, demand management and demand response. So imagine you've got conservation, which takes the whole load down. That's the first slice. Then you've got demand management, right? I can make a permanent reduction by making certain types of challenges or shifting. Storage is part of that. Then you've got demand response, which be, might be an event that happens very, very rarely for a very, very short period of time. And you really want to look at what's the, how do you want to spend your capital? Because un, un, ultimately, if, whether it's a utility or a customer or the public budget, Right? That's how these are getting funded is mostly through the SBC is there's a finite amount of capital. And you want to make sure that's spent in the most effective way possible, because otherwise you're taking away from other things which would provide more societal benefit. And I think what's happening now with this transition, again, what's very interesting in New York is the metering that's gone in 
which is now enabling you to have data and do things at a meter bait level, which you could only do at a substation level prior to this. So you can really specifically target programs, assets, right? A battery and it's an asset and resources, but also incentives. You can send a price signal, turn off an elevator for these, this amount of time, right? Raise your temperature. Sustainable Westchester is part of this grid rewards program. What's, what's quite amazing about that is they're really tackling that residential market, which as I mentioned earlier, is very, very hard to acquire and manage but they're sending a price signal to me and you, the individual Con Ed customer and saying, if you do these things at these times, we're gonna mail you a check. So I think we're in this very, very interesting stage where on an, on an accretive basis or on a cumulative basis, you can get a lot of bang for the buck if you can wrap up enough small distributed generation and, and, and management on the customer side of the meter. And that may be more cost-effective than doing it on the utility side with big batteries that are now one-for-one one displacements of peaker permanence. Hey, let me add a little to that, Michael. I think that two comments, and I want to dig a little deeper into the DER side. On the utility side, battery storage or large-scale storage on the utility side typically is going to service the mid-distribution lines all the way up through the transmission lines, which means that the utilities will get some benefit from grid stability for the power that uh, they can shoot upstream and to some extent downstream. And then, of course, uh, you know, the, of the elimination of the peaker plants is served by, by those uh, reducing at the transmission level in particular, where power is, is distributed through all the different distribution lines. So the role for large-scale grid storage is a little bit different than the role for DER storage or, or what we typically referred to as behind the meter storage. Behind the meter, there's actually additional value to the grid that unfortunately is typically not recognized and will not be recognized until there is a regulatory scheme that requires it, I believe. Um, and that is that we have states passing, and, and, and particularly in New York, we passed these laws for 100% renewable by, by the year 2020, but we have lines that just don't have capacity for that much power. So what happens is putting storage, you know, upstream in the distribution system or at the transmission level does absolutely nothing for the end of the line customers. Uh, anyone further down behind that meter, particularly at the very end of the distribution line. What we've been doing, you know, my company in partnership with uh, a company called Sonnen, what we've been doing is we've been developing and aggregating residential systems and small commercial systems at the very end of the distribution system. Now what we're able to do, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I can take an entire community off-grid or I can take power off certain circuits and certain lines throughout the distribution system to decongest them. What does that do? What that does is it facilitates the ability for those lines to take on more renewables. Now, I'm going to take you through a, a short story just to help the audience understand how this occurs. A, a line that goes from the substation all the way through to the final customer on that line. And all the power runs through that line. 
that line can only, it, it's sized, it, it, it'll burn out if it has more than a certain capacity, more than a certain uh, uh, amount of power running through that line. So what happens is the utilities have to look at each line and say between their base load and any renewables, we have to assume at all times, base load and renewables are all running at the same time because it's possible. And therefore we have to restrict the amount of renewables that can be on any given line based on the limited capacity of the line. Now, when I put a solar and storage system behind the meter, and at the end of that distribution system, I can pull that power, pull that customer offline. What that does is it means that if I could pull 500 customers from that community, that like I'm, you know, one of my projects, if I can pull all of those customers offline at the same time, it means that the utility can now size that line, assuming that my power is not going to be on it when grid power is on it. And therefore, it can now add additional renewables that it would not have been able to add had I not had the ability to pull my power off the line to allow their power to go onto the line. So in meeting the state's requirements to hit 100% renewables, the very first line of attack should be these aggregated residential virtual power plants. We're going to enable more storage, I'm sorry, more solar, more renewables to go onto those same lines further reducing the, the need for the uh, dirty generation and the peaker plant development. As, as each one of these systems has a solar and a storage system, eventually we can eliminate the need for peaker plants by simply using the aggregation of these small solar units to either release or absorb power at any given time. And that's the goal that, you know, three and a half years ago, I put together a charrette of some of the top folks in, in, uh, in the industry and said, how do we solve this problem? I had commissioners from state utility commissions. And what we all recognized is, is that the ability to decongest at the very end of the distribution system is the very first and the very least expensive way towards transitioning this grid from the backside up. So while the large companies are working on these large utility scale storage systems upstream and we're working on these small systems at the end of that of that line we're able to manage that grid from upside and downside and have the most stable grid with the maximum amount of renewables at the least amount of cost wow i think um, both of your responses provide a lot for regulators to think about i think new york is quite a bit ahead compared to other states but the level of distribution system planning that you both describe and the questions around um, how you incentivize customer behavior in various regards, I think um, a lot of states have quite a bit of work to do <laughs> ahead of them. I do wanna stick with the question of distribution system planning. So this, this talk intentionally focuses on peaker plants, but I believe Michael, um, you mentioned earlier the broader system or the broader question of gas decarbonization. So beyond the use of gas for larger scale power generation, but also for end use services in buildings, whether it's for cooking, heating, hot water, and so on. There is, I think, an as yet unaddressed link 
between electric and gas distribution system planning, which I do think New York is poised to address as part of its gas planning proceeding. I think it's gonna be one of the first jurisdictions to tackle this issue. Can you speak a little, if you have any thoughts on how to address the role of behind the meter or distributed storage in the context of comprehensive electric and gas system planning? I believe Con Ed is now in, in the midst of a study about what they're going to what they would need for their electric distribution capacity in order to, to really make this, this electrification transition. Oh, so that's going to be right. Space heating, water heating, and transportation. So being able to smartly manage that grid, this again comes back to the asset utilization question, which is what industrial engineers think about all day, right? How do they squeeze the most benefit out of a fixed asset is, is what it's, you know, a lot of that effort is going into that. I think there's, there's, there's a number of moving parts, right? First is obviously the distribution system itself. I, I believe I'm very, very confident Con Ed is, is planning on that. You know, it's uh, especially when the governor rejected the additional gas transmission lines coming into New York State. So that created a constraint. And what you saw evolve from that, what the utility has in its box is either, you know, efficiency and program. So they started to throw money to incentivize a behavior, whether it's from an end user uh, or a developer who's now making capital investment decisions. So for someone like me, I need to make capital investment decisions that are going to be living in a building for you know, 15, 20 years, at least, especially around space heating and water heating. There are certain opportunities come up. So when a boiler is at its end of, end of life, that gives me an opportunity to really think, how do I want to heat this building going forward? What are the regulatory pressures I'm going to be under? Or the pricing pressures might, might, I mean, gas is quite cheap. It's about a dollar a therm. It's not too long ago, we can remember when it was six, $6 a therm, sometimes even higher. So there's a lot of thinking that needs to go into it because they're, they're very long-term decisions that are being made on the owner-operator side or on the developer side. So I, I know the utilities are thinking about it. I still think, Jimmy, I'm here. I don't know if you're on the, the gas side, but to think about it from a building owner, operator, developer is there's, there's a lot of ambiguity out there. There's a lot of regulatory uncertainty. And frankly, the programs, the incentive side are not, there's not enough yet to tip the needle because there could, there's a big CapEx component and there's a big OpEx component. component. If you take it on a thermal basis, so if gas is a dollar a therm, and electricity is about 22 cents a kilowatt hour. So when you do, when you do the math and the thermodynamics, uh, gas, uh, electricity is about six times more expensive in terms of dollars per BTU as gas right now, you know, market rates. So you're gonna get some of that out of efficiency through electrification, but there's really, the, the real issue is price of the commodity to heat, to heat a space, and then the capital for what it costs to change out that infrastructure. So it's, uh, you know, it's a time that gives someone a lot of things to lose sleep over because they don't really know how it's going to go out. The other thing I, I just want to make a short comment, you know, is that, you know, in most things in life, we use the 80-20 the rule. Right? And the reason we do that is because sometimes the last bit can be disproportionately more expensive and take, you know, a disproportionate amount of time in your assets. So I think the idea of 
100% renewables or 100% carbon free, it's a good goal. But I'm hoping that there'll be some, a mechanism in there, whether it's credits or a trading regime or something like that, where you could really make sure that the money is spent most effectively. Because a lot of times when you're dealing with a built environment, you're, you're given a situation which is very, very hard to change. These are not ground up buildings. In most of New York, whether, you know, all the, the buildings that are going to be in New York are already built. So I think there needs to be an economic means by which that capital can be allocated most efficiently to get the goal of the cleanest environment possible, right? The cleanest uh, energy possible for the entire grid. I know that in New York, that's actually being addressed. And I can't remember her name. She's actually the wife of one of my investors, runs the, the New York State's um, Energy Efficiency Commission Committee, whatever it might be. Uh, and I know that she's implementing some pretty significant new policies that will significantly incentivize the oldest, the dirtiest buildings in New York through fines and penalties. So it's more of the, the stick approach than the carrot approach. Um, and, and I think that that's going to drive a lot of, of a, a lot of property owners to be in default or you know to have fines and penalties that they're probably not going to be able to pay. I think the appropriate approach is to if as a society we want a clean energy economy and we, we truly want to be 100% renewable, and as Michael was inferring, it's really not practical from an economic perspective today um, under our traditional valuation of, of assets. I think that if a society's will to really address climate change and to really eliminate the carbon production from electrification, that we as a society have to recognize that there is going to be a cost to that. Initially, we're all, we're all nibbling around the edges, trying to work within the constraints, the economic constraints that have been placed upon us as, as developers, investors, asset owners, and managers. But ultimately, if the state, if the state wants to, and, and, this, and the country wants to have a carbon-free electrification system or a truly transformed grid, then it has to be understood that resources need to be applied toward that. And that while we can work within, and I think we face this in a lot of states, we work within the economic constraints, we're trying to push the needle as far as we can without breaking the bank, as, as they say. Um, but at the same time, we all recognize that we need to break the bank or we're not going to get there. What I find most interesting what I find most interesting is that as a federal government, we're able to come up with stimulus bills that accomplish almost everything. And for a fraction of that amount of money, we could transform the entire grid. I think society has to, if society truly believes in climate change and truly wants to address it, then society has to be willing to pay it for it. And while we're going through a process to reduce the, the ultimate cost of the transformation of the grid. Um, and, and we're doing that now through, through efficiencies and technological advancements, all incentivized in order to get to where we want to be. There has to be a capital investment up front. All of those buildings we talked about, 
They were all built with large capital investments. And over time, they recaptured those investments through rents, leases, and, and operations. Well, we have, to, we have to accept the fact that if we truly want to, if we want to take a 100-year-old asset and convert it to a new modern asset, we're going to have to invest in it. No different than if I wanted to take my 100-year-old building that's a, a C-class, you know, low-rent, low-lease building. If I want to get Class A rents, I'm going to have to put, I'm going to have to improve the asset. So I, I think we have to look at the transition and determine, do we really want it? Are we, it's one thing to say we want it, but if we really want it, we have to be willing to, to make the sacrifices necessary to have it. And today those are, that, that's an economic sacrifice. But I do think a, a, you know, a coherent approach to say, this is what we're trying to accomplish and why, and then leave some flexibility in getting there uh, we'll, we'll probably get the most good done with, you know, with, with constrained resources, which are capital and, and frankly bandwidth. That's a really good point. Yeah, I think designing the end state and working back from there would be really helpful. To briefly recap what I've heard you both touch on, it sounds like, yes, coordinated distribution system planning is very important, but if the incentives aren't there, it's not that it doesn't matter the level of planning that utilities do on the, their distribution systems to try to bring in distributed energy resources if there aren't incentives for developers and building owners and operators to actually invest in those systems, then planning can only take you so far. And that, um, secondly, it sounds like efficiency both economic efficiency and energy efficiency are critical to helping us move away from gas. Does that kind of sum up the general themes here? If we want to talk about moving away from gas, let's face it. Why is gas even a competitive energy source? It's a competitive energy source because of fracking. We've been able to extract the gas at a much lower cost. And as a result, it's, an, it's a much stronger economic fuel than anything else right now. If we continue to frack, we're going to continue to have carbon emissions. And, and it's going to be virtually impossible to get people to accept the fact that a, if we want to get rid of this gas, the cost just went exponentially higher because of the exponentially lower cost of gas. I mean, let, let's face it, we, we, had, we have people paying less for their gas today than they did 10 years ago. So it's very hard to make an economic argument in disfavor of gas. You can argue the environmental impact of fracking. You can, you can make all those arguments. But ultimately, we you know, follow the money. We live in a society that's predicated on value. As much as we value our shorelines that are affected by climate change, as much as we value our health that's affected by, by climate change, we value the dollars in our pocket equally high. And in some instances, higher. You know, we've always heard the saying that, you know, people that are wealthy say, well, I'd give up all my wealth for good health. And people that are healthy say, I'd give up my health for some wealth. Um, the fact is that as a human society, each individual weighs the value of climate change differently. And for somebody that's in the business, um, that benefits from the actions that climate change have, have produced versus somebody 
who's on the other side of that net metering deal where their electricity prices have gone up because of their TND, you know, the, the higher percentage of TND that they're covering. So I think, I, I don't think that there's any single policy, any single strategy that's going to get us to where we need to be. I think it's going to take time, unfortunately, to have a social education to where people truly understand it. And what you're going to see is as the impact of climate change becomes more real to the individual, to that homeowner, to that tenant, um, as it becomes more real to them, attitudes will change. And uh, even in corporate America, we see that, you know, almost all major corporations now have some renewable energy requirements, goals, policies, energy efficiency goals, policies. So I, I think that corporate America is seeing the impact first. As it becomes more and more obvious to the individual, I think that we'll, we'll, we'll see a more concerted effort, a more willingness um, from a political perspective to put in place the regulation and the policy necessary to get us where we need to be in the most economically reasonable way. I want to tie together things that you've both referenced. So um, I think, Jim, you were just talking about uh, corporate America feeling the impact of climate change. First, Michael, earlier you were talking about the cost effectiveness of reaching commercial and industrial customers first, because that's where you have the lowest cost gains in in efficiency, for for example. The question then for, for me is, what specific solutions do you think are necessary to advance greater access to storage and clean energy generally to LMI customers and specifically to address environmental justice issues such as the impacts of peaker plants? Yeah, I think Westchester is doing it. If you look at the, the demand response program that Westchester came out with, that clearly will benefit the low and middle income communities. As long as those incentives are across the board and, and offset the capital cost of the systems themselves through the revenue that they, that they provide, it makes it more affordable for low and middle income communities. It makes it more affordable for developers like myself to install these systems and focus on the low and middle income communities. I just wish that I had regulation and policy supporting the, the installation and the incentivization of these systems in those low and middle income communities. We talk about, and this is something you don't really hear much about from a social injustice perspective. You know, we, we talked about the economic issues, but let's face it, it's a hell of a lot cheaper to build a peaker plant in a low income community where property prices are lower, less resistance from the community, the labor force to operate it is lower. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of benefits to put the dirtiest plants in the lowest income communities. I think we owe it to these communities to come up with the policies that will enable them to eliminate those peaker plants first. And I think that's the kind of thing that I know Senator Parker, as he listens to this podcast, I know that he's going to take that to heart. And I know that he'll take initiative to ensure that his constituents that are in those low and middle income communities are going to get a benefit from this podcast. Yeah. So I, I just kind of add on to that. The, so the issue in terms of 
where where peaker plants are, where storage should be. You know, is it a generation issue? Is it a transmission issue? Is it a is it a distribution issue? And when you get into what what Con Ed and, and the utilities look at, they're really looking on a substation by substation, sometimes a transformer by transformer basis about how can they get the power to where it needs to go, right? And not how only can they get it there, when does it need to be there? So you've got a location piece and a time piece. I think one of the most interesting innovations, again, that's why it's very fascinating to be working in New York right now, is this idea of beaters. And, and, and if you know what the beaters value stack is, there are a bunch of different components. There's the environmental component, there's the energy component, there's the what's called the LMI, the locational marginal pricing piece of it. So it's really starting to rationalize the cost of the cost of energy by time and by space. And if you think about your old electric meter, right, you had a dumb, you know, a dumb meter that would spin around and it would count itself over the course of months and someone would come and read it. And at the end of the day, okay, you, you've used 350 kilowatt hours and your bill is 70 bucks or something like that. And it, and it treated all of those as being the same. To me, what's fascinating and really what's happening is we can start with, with the advanced metering, with advanced analytics, with advanced controls, you can start to put this piece of, of usage, of demand, of storage, of generation, and I would throw EVs in there as well, charge and discharge cycles. And then like what's going on in sustainable Westchester, customer behavior, what can you actually do within your own house? And you start to put all those pieces in place, it's, it's getting all towards better asset utilization, which means you, you kind of abrogate, you, you, you negate the need for a lot of these things which are very, very important, but only marginally used, like peaker plants. But what I would advise is when we think about this discussion of peaker plants, well, suppose they were running off a of hydrogen and 100% clean. You still need to kind of separate this, this question of climate, of justice, of climate justice, which is one piece, but also rates, reliability, and resiliency. And there are more tools in the arsenal now to achieve that with these much, much smarter systems. On the monetary side, I think one of the other fantastic innovations now is, is community solar. Uh, we're doing projects with community solar in New York and as well in Rhode, Rhode Island and learned a lot about it. I'm a big fan of it because what it does is it decouples the person who has the solar asset from the, from the person who can benefit from that solar asset. And there's a big push to enable LMI, right, low and moderate income uh, rep, uh, utility customers to subscribe to that. So they get a discount on their solar just as if it was a behind the meter project. And that's, you know, if you kind of think about that from the evolution, what Jim described, the, the remote net metering days, where you pretty much had to be either a big user or, or a single family home to where you've got now that you can subscribe to a project. Uh, I think that's really democratized solar to a large, to a large degree. White Plains, um, where I live, is just, right, they've taken their roofs, rooftop. And I think, I think Sustainable Westchester was part of this uh, and, and are doing a, a large aggregated community solar project on White Plains' rooftops. And that anyone in Westchester can subscribe to that. So these, there's the technical innovation and then there's the kind of regulatory innovation that comes along with it. And both of those are enabling this transition, I think, to, to a better environment. 
Please remember that the views or opinions expressed in this recording reflect those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position of our sponsors, Sustainable Westchester, or the Interstate Renewable Energy Council. Nonprofit Sustainable Westchester offers a robust portfolio of clean energy solutions for municipalities, property developers, businesses, and residents. If you're a building owner, operator, architect, engineer, or professional who would like to explore implementing the 21st century heating and cooling technologies featured on today's episode, reach out to us. We will help you navigate available resources, including technical assistance, financing, and rebates. Today's episode was produced by Sustainable Westchester's Commercial Clean Heating and Cooling Team. Program Director Rachel Carpatella and Project Manager Harleen Srivastava with marketing and promotional support from Maria Genovesi and technical production from the Sound Media Group. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast. Stay tuned for another episode real soon.